You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Okay, good afternoon. Um, thank you for coming. My name is uh, Dan Geary. I, I teach uh, U.S. history here at Trinity, uh, and I'm delighted today to be in conversation with my friend uh, Van Goss, um, who is a very, very fine uh, historian of many things to do with uh, the United States. We'll be talking about his uh, research. I won't go into too much details, but the uh, first book of his that I got to know is a book called Where the Boys Are, which is about the US and, its, uh, and Cuba um, around the time of uh, Castro, uh, the Cuban Revolution, and uh, its impact especially on the US New Left. And most recently, he's written this, uh, this book here, The First Reconstruction, which is about African-American politics in the US uh, before, <laughs> before the Civil War, the US Civil War. Yeah. Uh, we'll have a chance to talk a bit more about some of this stuff as, as we go along. And I'll uh, uh, leave open some time as well for you to ask uh, any questions that, that you like. Uh, but Van, I wanted to start here, which is, uh, I think you've had uh, maybe a less conventional academic career than, than most, it would be fair to say. Um, and, you know, really from the beginning, um, you have mixed scholarship with uh, political activism. Yeah. Um, and if, could you just tell us a little about that? I mean, I guess in your, in your own life, um, how that developed and, and how, for you, the, the two things, I suppose, go together. Okay, it's, good. it's a good question. Well, I'm old enough to have come into polit politics via the anti-Vietnam War movement when I was very young. Because that was in ways that, am I, am I? Oh, you're gonna talk right into it. Okay. I, was, I came into politics via the anti-Vietnam War movement at the end of the 60s and 70s, which was in many ways actually um, fun, deeply not properly studied or accounted for because it is, it is so large and it, it affects everything in the United States. So in a sense, I mean, if you've been in something like that where it is, it per permeates ordinary life, you know, you're in your, I don't know, whatever you would call the classroom when you're 11 years old and you start debating with your history teacher, well, I don't think that's true what you just said about this war. And you're seeing veterans come back minus limbs who are being paraded to you as some kind of heroes. So that shaped me because basically, um, it certainly gave me a sense of the possibilities that, you know, that this idea that there's no such thing as a left in the United States is a myth, and it's said for purposes to, to, you know. So for me, I forget the exact day in April 1975 when Vietnam was finally liberated, you know, that was, I was about to graduate from high school. So I'm lucky enough to have remembered what it was like, in a certain sense, to win, to be on the right side. Um, and, uh, and then in the 1980s, as I was finishing my undergraduate degree, I got my undergraduate degree at the age of 25, which I love telling my students because they're so anxious about this, you know, in the U.S. anyway. Um, so while I was finishing that, I became involved in the El Salvador Solidarity Movement, which was one of the largest left-wing movements of the 1980s in the U.S. Um, the larger Central America movement, El Salvador, Nicaragua, and um, and I've actually written a little about this in terms of Ireland. It's my one article dealing with Ireland is about Reagan's visit here, where he was, and I remember this very fondly, frankly, 1984. He was thoroughly repudiated by, you know, no bishop would meet with him. Um, Cardinal Lofi left the country, 
so that he wouldn't, you know, and Garrett Fitzgerald publicly told him, you know, we don't agree with your policy. But so I remember that, you know, so that's my political formation is, is those experiences. And then I went to graduate school in 1985 at Rutgers, the state university, which had been a leading place in the U.S. for, I mean, it was the first place that E.P. Thompson came in the U.S. in 1966. If you know who Edward Thompson is, the great British historian, right? So Rutgers was a place, it, it, it was in the 80s and remains one of the two main central places to study women's and gender history in the U.S. And in fact, for me, by sheer good luck, I hadn't studied that. I would suggest that I go do that, and it changed my intellectual life to study women's history at Rutgers. Um, so, you know, I was very fortunate, basically. I've been very fortunate. But while I was at Rutgers, um, and the department, which would not have been true at a lot of other places, was extremely supportive, I maintained my very active involvement in the El Salvador movement. We had a statewide organization, part of the U.S. Committee in Solidarity of the People of El Salvador, CISPES, and we had one of the strongest statewide organizations, a whole crew of us all around. So, um, and then the Cold War ended. The war in El Salvador ended, uh, though, you know, on about as good terms as uh, we could have gotten. Those, um, but it all came to an end, and then we go into the 90s, and we have Bill Clinton, this triangulating, slippery fellow, and everything, Everything dealing with foreign policy in the U.S. kind of collapsed. I mean, not totally, but it became very residual, if I can use that Raymond Williams word, you know. Um, in the later 90s, um, I, and I, I, I didn't get an academic job. I finished my Ph.D. I wrote this book, Where the Boys Are. <clears throat> and I'm not going to tell you that I was victim of McCarthyism or anything, but I would go and give these job talks in great departments, and I had this idea I was going to write a book about the Central America Solidarity Movement. I'd started publishing articles about it, Refereed articles. Well, the problem is if you're sitting in the 90s and you want to, you're, you're telling, giving job talks about a movement that actually still exists or, or you know, was at its peak 10 years or five years before, most of the people in the room, and I'll, I'll put this, you know, I'm an American, most of the older white men in particular, I've never heard of that, so it can't be important. Actually, even my book on Cuba, I got a lot of like, my book on Cuba is 56 to 62. Well, in 93, I was still getting a kind of, this is recent journalistic kind of history. I don't know if you have that here. There's a lot of like, if you know, I'm just telling you some good stories. I got a one-year job at Wellesley College, which is a very prestigious women's college. And they said they hired me to replace their moderate, late, their 20th century Americanist because he wouldn't teach past 1968, and I would. This is in 92, okay? So, um, but I'm not casting myself as a victim. I chose to give these strange job talks, which were probably often much too long. So then um, uh, I got a job from 95 to 2000 while I was publishing a lot of articles and, and I, I'd gotten into the editorial board in 1990, where I still am, of the Radical History Review. Now, the Radical History Review, I've had to explain this to some non-historians, is one of the most widely read and cited journals in history in the world, actually. We're published by Duke University Press. We took them over Ca Cambridge, which was less efficient. And um, so it's, it's a, it actually represents the, and I'm going to use this word deliberately, the hegemonic influence of broadly conceived left-wing people in the US history profession, or at least people who consider themselves to be progressive and on the left. 
because we are not an obscure journal. We are cited more than almost anyone, you know, other than the big ones. So that was my home away from home in the 90s. Then I got this job to be organizing director of Peace Action, which still exists today. Peace Action was the successor. Word to the wise, if you have a publicly known organization, never change your name. It had been very publicly known as the Committee for a Sane Nuclear Policy, and if you know anything about disarmament politics, this is the equivalent of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament in England, SANE, it was called SANE, and then it merged with the Nuclear Weapons Freeze Campaign, which was enormous. So it was this organization that had half a million members circa 1989, and then they changed their name, and of course people lost their interest in peace politics. So there I was working for Peace Action, but it had this history. I was their organizing director for five years. And then I finally, at the age of 43, got a tenure track job at Franklin and Marshall, where they were very generous about my activism. And since then, I've, I will, you know, I'm giving you the whole personal history here. I've done a lot of other things. I was very involved because of my sort of background, you know, my connections or whatever, in the Iraq anti-war movement, the main organization of which was United for Peace and Justice, a coalition, and I was you know, help put it together. Um, since then, I am the co-chair. I helped found Historians Against the War. When Trump got elected, we changed the name to Historians for Peace and Democracy. You can look us up. I'm the co-chair. I'm not going to tell you that this is a mighty, powerful thing. On the other hand, the fact that it exists means that we have a base of people. We've got about 1,400 people on our email list. We can go, and we can get people, and get to bring a resolution to the American Historical Association. Actually, we brought three resolutions to censor Israel for its manifest violations of academic freedom, and I'll let you know, each time we've been defeated, the best we can say is that our margins got better. Because, you know, people would come out very strongly and no reference, no negative thing about Israel at all, including in the historical profession. But we are the people who would go and do that, and, you know, we, we've got to, you better hang on to what you've got, so to speak. So that's my... Um, I mean, I do other stuff, but that's who I am as an activist, which I'm glad to have the chance to actually talk about, you know, and, without shame. <laughs> and obviously, uh, with your uh, first book, I mean, you've spoken about lots of articles as well, but about the Latin American Solidarity Movement yeah. with regard to Cuba and where the boys are, and I suppose the origins of the American New Left, which you came in at the tail end of, um, if you like, this is somewhere where your activist interest fed into your scholarship in a, in a, in a quite direct way. Yeah, they, it's, it's kind of circled around, you know, um, at least back then. Because I wrote, so again, I mean, you know, historiography, there's a lot of it about many different things. And the historiography I'm going to refer to may have no resonance here for perfectly good reasons. From well, really, from 1972, when Kirkpatrick Sale wrote that book called SDS, and then into the 80s and the 90s. Maybe you've heard of SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, very important young white left organization, but very important. There was a whole group of historians, not, you know, not, not incompetent bad scholars, who had been in SDS. Now, let me be clear. I, there's a lesson for me here. If you write about things you've been in, you might have a somewhat skewed perspective. But there were a whole series of books that basically said, and this still exists today, I mean, I can tell you, that the new left equals SDS. So I wrote a series of books, starting with Where the Boys Are, and then four more? <laughs> you know, a, a primary documents book, an edited 
another monograph, et cetera, saying, no, I don't agree. The New Left was not fundamentally a movement of young white students. Um, I actually think, to be blunt, that that's really politically problematic to put SDS in the forefront. The paradigmatic New Left organization in the US, I say this without, I'm never going to back off this, is the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC. That is what's new. That is what blazes the way in so many ways. This is who takes young people, black and whites, into the Deep South. And they are, you know, uh, I'm about to publish a you know, set of articles about the New Left and Princeton history of American political thought. I got seven documents. Three of the seven, at least, relate to SNCC. This is John Lewis. Maybe you've heard of him, the congressman who just died. Uh, women's liberation. Every one of the movements of people of color are inspired by this. The Chicano movement, the American Indian movement. So I have been arguing repeatedly, over and over, saying, well, no, the new left is a multiracial and multigenerational. It is not, new does not automatically mean young. It means different, right? So that's my endlessly repeated argument, which, you know, periodically I meet a grad student says, oh, yeah, I read that book in, you know, I was like, thank God, because it's still very, it's probably still in the textbooks, honestly, which is how you know in the U.S., you know, when you finally got over so that's where, I'm, that's where my scholarship ran into my activism because in a way, you know, I, I, well, anyway, that's, the, you know, it was a political fight that I was having, but I also think it's grounded in, in reading the primary documents and taking a fresh eye to what actually happened in the later 50s, really the 50s, not even later 60s, 70s. Oh, to be quick, um, part of the problem with this other history is it turns new left into a sort of weird, fetishized, mechanical idea of the 60s, as in something that started on January 1, 1960, and ended on December 31st, 1969. You're looking at me like, really? Of course, that's been blown away. A lot of people are talking about the long 60s and sort of it's a broad idea. But there's still a lot of that, as if everything before 1960 doesn't count. And that's also what I've argued with. And part of that, to relate it to what you asked me is, because when I was really getting into being political and becoming an historian in the 80s, there was such a kind of like sentimental, romantic, oh, well, the 60s is when we really had movements. And people who had stopped being active saying there were no more movements anymore. In fact, one more little, it's a joke, but not really. So when I was rediscovering all this Cuba stuff, I had no idea. The only thing anybody knew about Fair Play, Fair Play for Cuba Committee was that supposedly Lee Harvey Oswald was a member of it. You know who Lee Harvey Oswald is, right? Yeah. Okay, which was, who knows exactly who created that, you know, the conspiracy theories there, so I don't touch that stuff. So anyway, I was, I was talking to someone who had been a central leader of the student left at Berkeley. Now, in the U.S., there are two campuses. Actually, Berkeley is number one. If you, I mean, even there's a really wide popular understanding. University of California, Berkeley equals left, okay? That's very well understood. So I'm talking to this guy who is himself what we call a red diaper baby, meaning his parents were communists, eventually he was. He went way back before into the 50s. And he said this thing, I'll never forget this. This is when I was just getting started doing interviewing. He said, well, there are all these people that think the movement started when they joined and it ended when they left. But I have to be, and I, I'm not telling you I've done this right necessarily. I mean, I write about things I've been involved in, so I have, I'm very aware of that I may 
you know, skew it to the things that happened when I was around and, or what, when I was active, you know, this is a problem that I've had to deal with. Yeah, uh, and obviously you could have gone on to, you know, not that there's a shortage of things to be done in writing about the, the new left and the, as you call it, the movement of movements of yeah. that period from really the, the mid-1950s to the, to the mid-70s, if yeah. you loosely, uh, chronologically. But you did something that most historians don't do, which is you went back to a different historical period. I mean, I don't yeah. know about another discipline, but most historians tend to pick a, a quite narrow period, at least maybe a century, and, uh, and stick to that. Uh, but you went back before the Civil War yeah. um, and uh, recently published this book on black politics, the first Reconstructors. You see, it's not a slim volume. It's, uh, uh, and Van has generously agreed to, to donate this uh, here and brought this uh, uh, with him today. But, you know, how, did, I suppose, did you make that choice where you're, you're working on really the post-World War II period, the, mm -hmm. the long 60s, if you like, and now you've gone back uh, 100, 150 years. Um. Well, when I look at it, almost everything that I have done, and you know, I'm, I'm pretty old, so I've done a, lot, a fair amount, not as much, I mean, you look at people who've done like 20 books and it's really scary, you know, but like him, you know, pretty, pretty try to keep writing and so on. Almost everything I've ever done was, I don't want to call it accidental, but it wasn't planned. I mean, I really mean that. So the Where the Boys Are, was just so you know, I thought I was going to write a dissertation on the Central America Solidarity Movement and its roots, which I'd been involved in, right? And I was, and I, and I was doing all, I did like 80 interviews. And at some point, somebody said to me, well, you know, I, I, I was the guy, the same guy who made the crack wonderful line about people who think movements start when they join and so on. And I said to him in my authoritative way at the age of 29 or whatever, I said, well, of course, there really isn't anything before I mentioned, you know, the response to the U.S. intervention in the Dominican Republic in 65-66. And he looked at me kind of quizzically, this older veteran guy, U.S. leftist. He said, well, there, there was the Fair Play for Cuba committee. And I had this like, uh-oh, I have no idea what he's talking about. Okay, I, that, that leads to a dissertation and a book. So I do this book on Cuba. And then I'm teaching my other one year. We call them VAPs now, visiting assistant professor. Uh, which is a lot better than visiting than adjunct. At least you're paid a salary. Um, and I had a, a VAP at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. And the person who hired me, a wonderful uh, literary historian, said, well, we're going to do a retrospective on Harold Cruz's The Crisis of the Negro Intellectual. And your book has quite a bit on early sort of pre-black power figures like Harold Cruz going to Cuba. Why don't you just do an essay on, on black intellectuals in Cuba? That was 1995, and here I am. I'm really not exaggerating. So I did this. I did do a really big essay on Harold Cruz and all of these things he was involved in. He's a central intellectual figure in the black power movement, and for a while, extremely famous. Harold Cruz, C-R-U-S-C, -C, the crisis of the Negro intellectual. So I do this big essay. And then I sort of get this idea that I'm going to do a history of black politics. Or I would, the book was titled, it's not written, Black Power in White America, that was going to start at the end of Reconstruction. This is what I'm thinking about doing now. Okay, that was in 1996 or 8. And I did all this research. Okay, 
and I started the book. I started writing the book, and I suddenly realized, well, there, there, is, there seems to be some stuff before the Civil War. So I ended up doing this, because it turned out I kept finding more and more. And I, you know, I don't mean to be like, aha, this is the way to do things, but there is really nothing like letting the primary sources speak to you. When t someone tells you there isn't, or it wasn't, or that's how it is, my, at this point, my reaction is, well, maybe you're wrong. If there's, if there's something there, if there's, if there's a source if I've, that contradicts what is the conventional view, well, let's track it down. I really mean that. I'm, so look at this, and it took me, I don't know, 16 years to write it, and it's this big because almost nothing had been written about black politics before the Civil War. There were, here, there were a few things, not much, mostly from African-American historians when nobody read them except other African-Americans here and there. And I, the more I went into it, I found out that there was actually a lot, a lot of party politics, voting, where black men could vote, where they lost the vote and got it back. I'm not going to tell you about the whole book. You could read it. It's very long. But um, so that's, that's how that happened. It was one thing led to another. And, but just to bring it up so you can see how this goes. So I'm sitting here, what was it, January, and you said, I'm, I want to do a conference here uh, on, on what happened to American liberalism in the late 20th century because all of the hist historiography is about the rise of the right, the Reagan revolution and all that, but the liberals don't go away. What happened to them? Why don't you do something on foreign policy? Well, here we go again. So I've given Dan, I came, we had a great conference. He's got this article, about pretty long, about a lot of the things that I was involved in the 80s and 90s, when we had a really like solid block in Congress. This goes completely against what you may have thought about the 80s and 90s in the US. A really solid block, like averaging about 22, 23% of the House and Senate that would not vote for any intervention anywhere or any weapons program. Now, I want to be clear, there's always the third rail, which is Israel, but that doesn't even come up. There's even any touch of activism on that. But other than that, so I wrote this article, and I'm probably going to turn it into a book. And it's, it's due to him, too. Well, it's a wonderful story of uh, serendipity. And I think, you know, yeah, you find that to be true in a lot of uh, the scholarly careers. Um, you know, especially among those who aren't necessarily just happy to keep plowing the same field, you know, over and over again. Uh, and I think it's also a lovely story of, um, or illustration of what, you know, kind of activist scholarship should be at its best, which is, it's not that you go to history to try to, um, you know, propagate your perspective to other people, that you're going to history to say, well, I'm gonna find some, you know, some evidence to support my view. No, actually you're going, with a particular you know, question and perspective to the historical record, but then you're finding something new. Because if you're not doing that, you're not really doing you know, scholarship. Uh, you're doing something else. Um, and I, I wonder if we could talk a little bit more, though, about your, I suppose, what you're doing here at the Hub uh, oh. in particular, and how it connects to what you're working on now. Now, God, got you to write yet another book, but uh, yeah. uh, but you've got one to finish yet on uh, carrying forward black politics from the post-Civil War period. Uh, and while you're here, you're having a particular look at the way in which African-American politics intersected Irish politics and the politics of the Irish diaspora mm -hmm. in the United States. 
Uh, and this is something that's gotten you know, more and more discussion here in, uh, in Ireland and I suppose in the US as well, the, the sort of relations between what some scholars will call the black and the green, yeah. uh, which is uh, extremely complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but I know this is something that you're, you're researching at this moment, um, mm-hmm. so you're, you're in the middle of it, so you may not have you know, firm conclusions yet, but uh, yeah. yeah, but tell us about the, the black and the green and how the politics of African Americans and the politics of, of the Irish diaspora uh, intersected in quite significant ways in, in, in the 20th century. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a few, I mean, I, I got my login information on Thursday, the day I was last here talking, and on Wednesday I was at the coffee hour. A lot has happened in the past week. Um, I mean, I found, I don't know, I have no conclusions yet. Um, but what I will say is this, so, the biggest fact, thing, in African American history in the 20th century is the great migration of millions and millions of people out of the Deep South, where they have no civil, political, or human rights at all. They have no rights which any white man need respect. They are subject not just to lynching, but to casual violence, disrespect. You know, their legal contracts can be voided. Right? So they have none. I mean, there are other people in the world today who are in a similar situation. I'm sure you know what I mean. You have no rights. Things can be done to you. So um, they leave, and they go en masse. Chicago's number one, Pittsburgh, Detroit, to cities which are, in 1915, almost entirely Irish-run, and for a long time to come. The political machines, the police forces, are, I mean, and the Irish, to be clear, are dominating all the other Catholics, too, right? They're dominating the Poles and the Italians and the Slavs. They're powerful, and they, with a great deal of intention, incorporate this mass of possible voters, because that is, I, for my students, when I teach them the Great Migration, I say, well, yeah, okay, so you can actually get a cash wage, uh, uh, you know, cutting up animals in a stockyard in Chicago, and you haven't seen a cash wage ever as a sharecropper, and you can vote. That's what's different. You're not treated properly. You're still subject to police violence, but you can vote, and you can be a wage laborer, which a black man in Mississippi probably, not on those terms. So, how, that's where this starts. That's a that's over in the diaspora. You know, how does the Irish-American Democratic Party machines deal with black voters? Now, what does it mean here? Last Wednesday, I said I'm going to be looking at lynching. And I remember someone saying perfectly recently, well, you might be bringing an America-centric point of view, you know. Uh, maybe uh, um, lynching, and, you know, this is, this is mass violence on, a, on a, every year, in and out, in a very spectacular way. It's not quiet. It's public murder, okay? It is covered in great and constant detail in Irish newspapers. Irish people would have known what it was in the way British people knew what it was, or French or German. This is part of what they knew about America. That I can say for sure at this point. I have no doubt. There is, there's that, and then over next to it, this isn't a conclusion, I'm just telling you what I found, is this extremely granular, like close-up attention to whatever Irish people are doing in America, or to put it another way, whatever success Irish people are having, Irish men, their rise to prominence, especially in politics. So there's this 
you know, and a lot of which is very personal. They come over here, they come back, you know, these powerful politicians and maybe other figures as well. So there's this very strong sense, but it's very blinkered, it's very specific. So there's that connection, and then there's this awareness of what is happening to African Americans. There's certainly, the press shows an awareness of what we call Jim Crow or apartheid or whatever you want. Beyond that, I'm not sure, you know. Um, Paul Robeson, who would have been probably the most famous black man in the world for a couple of decades, Paul Robeson, the actor, singer, you know, he's as big a star here as he is anywhere. He's, you know, a huge figure. I'm just throwing this out. I'm pretty certain I'm going to find the same thing about Duke Ellington. I'm, I'm reasonably confident. So this is what I'm poking at, and thank, thanks to Dan, I just had an incredibly productive meeting with Brian... Hanley. Hanley. I was going to say Shanley, but I was afraid I was wrong, who frankly took me from, you know, zero to 60 in the past two hours. So, because he knows so much. And there's new, there's a lot of nuances here. You know, the explicit from de Valera on down solidarity with India, there is not that kind of solidarity with African Americans, right? Dev and the Indian, that's very real. I mean, I've heard about that before. The Indians, you know. Um, so there's all kinds of issues that come here. On the other hand, and I'll just finish on this, because this is, I mean, this is what I'm doing like last night and this morning, okay? Uh, does the name Jesse Owens ring any bells? He's a, a, an amazing black athlete who went to the Berlin Olympic Games in 36, and, um, you know, uh, triumphed is one of the greatest triumphs in Olympic history. He won everything, not one gold medal. And I, I never actually remembered, did Hitler actually have to put it on him? But it was, it, at least, for, it was widely seen as a powerful, powerful rebuff to Nazi race doctrine. Uh, Jesse Owens is a hero in Ireland. I mean, it's just, you know, a, a, a massive adulatory coverage of this, you know, fastest man in the world. I'm not telling you I know what this means yet. I'm just saying this is, this is where I got to, you know. Well, it's obviously a, uh, a very enormously complicated, uh, rich topic, and yeah. we look forward to seeing more, I suppose, what, uh, what you come up with. Well, thank you very much, Van. It's been a thank very you. interesting conversation, and uh, people want to continue to speak with Van. I'm sure he'll be around. Uh, I'll be around. Here. He's yeah. here, for, yeah. Two he's weeks. here for, for the month as well yeah. here at the Hub. So thank you all for coming. Thanks a lot.